hidden identities and gender wars. Race and belonging, Shakespeare's Othello holds out a startling mirror to the turbulent times we live in now. Pinned against a backdrop of rising populism, xenophobia and deepening tensions, we explore how a 400-year-old play casts a spotlight on contemporary Britain. Hello, I'm Ramona Ali, and welcome to The Othello Project, a podcast series which accompanies English touring theatre's groundbreaking production of Shakespeare's Othello. In this penultimate episode, we explore class, power and privilege. We consider who wields economic power and who doesn't. And what parallels can we find in the character dynamics between Othello and Iago? Our special reporter, Enerjay Khan, visits the first Somali mayor of Sheffield, Majid Majid, to get his take on politics and power. And we hear from British Muslim playwright Rabia Hussain, who reflects on growing up in an immigrant community and on the dividing and unifying factors that class can create. Welcome to episode four, Class and Power. But first of all, let's hear from our reporter, Aina J. Khan. We are tucked away deep inside a community radio station. But tell me, why are we here? And actually, mo- more importantly, who are you? And so I am the Lord Mayor of Sheffield. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to catch up with yourselves. So, Majid, as you know, we have a production of Othello, which is touring around the country. But I suppose we're here today to actually talk um, about themes that are discussed within the play. And one of them is class and power. And since you are the mayor of Sheffield, in fact, the the youngest elected mayor this country has ever had, I think you're probably the best person to speak to about this topic. So in 2017, uh, the general election happened and we had the most diverse House of Commons elected. Then you come along in May 2018 and cause quite a stir with your election as mayor of Sheffield. Tell us about that. Tell us about your journey to becoming mayor. Wow. So where did it, where did it all begin? I think, in honesty, it came from a place of wanting me just to, I guess, have a positive contribution to those around me, and especially during a time when it was 2014, when there was a rise and especially a lot of rhetoric around fear, hate, division. At the time, UKIP actually won the European elections. So I kind of thought to myself, well, I need to somehow get involved. If I can at least make my part of the world, Sheffield, that bit better. And then the idea of just party politics came into mind, even though I had no idea about party politics or just how it worked. I honestly couldn't even tell the difference between left or right. But for me, it was the case of if you don't do politics, politics will do you. So I felt the need to get involved and joined the Green Party because that's where a lot of my morals and principles lied with the best and then got elected as a Green Party councillor and then from there then just ended up getting elected as Lord Mayor of Sheffield and I think honestly I think one of the reasons just coming into your point on representation I think one of the reasons why me becoming Lord Mayor has caused a lot of got a lot of attention shall we say is due to a failed democracy in the sense that if we look at all forms of government whether that be local government to national government if we look at the people who are there meant that meant to leaders, they don't reflect the people that they're there to represent. So if we look at, for example, our national government cabinet, they're all millionaires. So how are they truly meant to understand issues like child poverty? Or how are they meant to really understand the impact of austerity on people? Yet they're the ones that are making decisions that that's going to affect everybody in the country. So that's why I think it's now really more important than ever 
that we have a more diverse group of people that actually leaders, whether that be more people of colour, more people from the LGBT plus community, more disabled um, people. So it really helps us in having a more equal society, I'd say. Please tell me tell me a bit about yourself in terms of where you came from. You weren't born in this country, were you? No. So um, I came to this country when I was five years old with my family. And we moved to the great city of Sheffield uh, from Somalia. So I reckon a lot of people don't know that Sheffield is also the first city of sanctuary. Basically meaning that it was the first city to be given that status because it's got a long, rich history of welcoming people from different parts of the world. And it was actually the first city where refugees would get settled in, in the UK. So we actually came to Sheffield. Of course, I couldn't speak a word of English, but neither could my uh, mum and sister and stuff. But I guess you learn to adapt. And especially it was a lot easier for me because I guess when you're five years old and you're young, language isn't as much of a barrier when it comes to playing with other children as it is for my mother who had to raise children in a completely new environment. You're no stranger to looking different as well, because as we know, the photograph yeah. of you when you were elected as mayor, I think you had like um, Doc Martens for booted and suited, traditionally yeah. like any traditional politician, but with your own kind of injection of uh, your own style. Yeah. T- tell me about that. Is that part of the disruption? First of all, I acknowledge that I am really fortunate enough to be able to do what I do and understand that I have got a platform which I guess comes with responsibility. But it's at the same time, it's what you do with it. So even by that picture, it was like just to address, because that first picture was like when I got inaugurated, it was just to say, I'm here, I'm different, I'm going to celebrate the fact that I'm different, but I'm also going to do things differently. So just through that aspect, just from literally visually looking different to earn everybody else around you, people will instantly treat you differently. Whether they choose to or not, choose to do it on purpose or not, people will treat you differently. And I wonder, you being the mayor of Sheffield, you uh, as someone who occupies a position of power, oftentimes power comes with this sense of you need to mitigate or kind of neutralise the identities that you carry. You need to be on a neutral platform and so any kind of religiosity or any identities you have, you need to hide those almost. Have you ever felt like that? Honestly, I probably feel those a lot of those pressures now at the moment in what I do in the sense that there is so much pressure at times to really um, conform to these kind of societal pressures, even like within the work environment that I do. And people keep saying, listen, Magic, you can't be rocking the boat too much because you're going to um, piss some people off and whatnot and you shouldn't be too political. But I haven't got the privilege of not being political. Like, I'm a black Muslim immigrant. It's, I've got, like... I can't afford to not speak about when I see injustices that might affect my fellow brothers and sisters and X, Y, Z. So I will always, and it is it is generally, I think probably the hardest thing about my role at times is probably gen- just being true to who I am and not betraying my character and my faith. That probably gets tested the most out of anything. If you had seen someone who looked like you on stage, would that have maybe sparked an interest for you in something like Shakespeare, I wonder? So my only experience with Shakespeare is basically in secondary school. We had Romeo and Juliet. I think it's Act 1, Scene 5, something like that was the dancing scene. <laughs> so it wasn't something I actually enjoyed. Because you can argue it just was inaccessible. I just couldn't, didn't find it easy to read. But the language that the ordinary people speak and what politicians speak at times can be really inaccessible and people just can't engage with politics because it feels as if like that's a whole different world or that's not for them because they don't have that level of understanding i'll tell you a quick story right so i actually when i was 16 partook in this play in sheffield crucible theater right 
I was so embarrassed. I didn't tell any of my family or friends or anybody that I was actually, for six weeks, like four times a week, I was actually going to the Christopher Theatre just to do some theatre. Why enough were you embarrassed? Because, honestly, like, it was seen as if, like, I know it sounds stupid, but I would actually go out the back exit and just be like, and then meet my friends afterwards and be like, hey, guys, how you doing? Even a friend goes, did you just come out of the theatre? Just curious. Say, oh, yeah, my friend works. I was just saying hi. But even when it came to the performance, everybody had their family and friends there, of course. And I'm just like, like imagine where's your family and friends? Yeah, everybody was busy kind of thing. Especially coming like from looking at my own family and looking at how they see the arts and stuff. It was just seen as a complete like waste of time and as if like, what are you doing that for? Like It was just genuinely negatively seen and it's just like, gosh, I was could not tell a single person. Did you see anyone growing up who looked like you? I think, I think, especially if you look, think about politics, there really wasn't, even within Sheffield's like local and um, political scene, local council, there really wasn't anybody that actually looked like me. So there wasn't no, um, there was no black people on the council. So I thought to myself, well, do you know what? This will give me a really good opportunity just to be able to get my voices heard. But at the same time, it's that thing, I guess, of, you need to see it to be it. So right now, as a result of me being holding this role as Lord Mayor, there's been a lot of people, black people, Asian people, just people of colour actually been getting in touch and saying, I've never thought of ever engaging in politics. But the only way we can actually find an understanding and get people to understand or just see that we're just like them, that we both all have the same issues, is by trying to find some sort of common ground and say the fact that, listen, it's a whole call that we have more in common than that divides. Of course, we need to celebrate all the great things that makes us different from people. We should also celebrate the stuff that unites us people and just really focus on that to bring people together. After hearing Aina's interview with Majid Majid, I wanted to redirect these questions of class and power to one of the cast members of Othello, Philip Correa, who plays Cassio. So, Phil, Cassio's reputation is uh, compromised by him getting into this drunken brawl and, you know, he loses his position and, and there's insinuations about his relationship with Desdemona. Although he's got, like, he's got girl problems, he's got work problems, he's got PR problems. Um, why is reputation you know, so important to Cassio? You know, is it something that a modern audience can actually relate to? Uh, I hope so, yeah. I think uh, reputation in the way that Cassio sees it stems back to a childhood and a background of privilege and possibly even of aristocracy. And I think, you know, in Elizabethan England, we have, uh, in most of Shakespeare's plays, particularly a lot of the male characters who are in the army, um, are often very, very preoccupied by status and about their reputation, for example. I think the way I was coming at it was more, if you look at kind of neoliberalism or kind of the, I suppose, Thatcherite politics of Britain that could be argued are still evident today. And I think that that drive towards putting our kids towards private schools and about success and success in terms of consumerism and materialism and trying to really push for this sort of, I don't know, an idealised status, a a status that you can show people that you can buy and that you can achieve and then you can most importantly pass on. I think that's the world that Cassio is from. It's this world of everybody being born into privilege and that's not the world that I'm from in real life and therefore... I'm always very keen to do Shakespeare in my own accent because um, I always feel that it's important that young people see uh, kings and princes with different accents. But in this case, I thought it was really, really important to not do that. And I've chosen quite a kind of very privileged kind of Bullingdon Club 
accent because I wanted to show exactly what Iago speaks about when he speaks in one of his monologues, I think it's in Act 2, where he says Cassio's a proper man. And when I've been talking to some of the young people that I worked with recently about the part in the play, I, want, I wanted to ask them what they thought Cassio being a proper man meant. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's that thing of people from, those kids were from Doncaster, people from my hometown are often not news presenters, they're often not um, journalists, they're often not musicians, they're often not actors. And I think Cassio is the type of person that is all of those things often. The way I, I thought that kids could kind of engage with that is to think of, a, of an accent uh, or a position that is, in our society, privileged and born into a higher class. <laughs> that is brilliant, because you are often judged by, by your accent, and that, apparently that's the first thing that you're judged on, even before your, your appearance sometimes. It is really fascinating to, to hear that because Cassio is all about the public image. Um, and he's also, interestingly, the way he views others is also very superficial. So the way he looks at um, Desdemona, like he puts her on this pedestal. And with Bianca, it's, there isn't that much respect there for Bianca because um, she's a bit lower class. So class does come into it, as you mentioned, about the Etonian uh, angle what role does class and power play in Cassio's behaviour? I'm probably giving Cassio a little bit of an easy time here, but my belief is that he actually is much more respectful of the women in the play than many of the characters are. Um, I think when he isn't respectful of them is when he's in front of other men, and I think that's because Cassio cannot interact with other men. I think he finds it incredibly difficult, and I think he feels very at home speaking with women um, I think his issue with Bianca and why he treats her so uh, badly in front of Iago in act four where he says I must leave her company and you know she haunts me in every place I think he, he says that because he's embarrassed in front of another man and a man of lower status in his eyes a man of lower class in his eyes and he has to keep up this appearance he has to keep up this reputation and probably like those Bullingdon Club people we were talking about sometimes they say things that I think probably they think that they should say or are brought up to say and I don't actually think that they behave like that at home with their, with their wives or their girlfriends or, or whoever or their daughters um, but sometimes they're maybe forced to by the society we live in Aina has now joined me in the studio. Thank you so much for that report, Aina. It was so intriguing to hear Majid Majid talk about the, the civic engagement, his identity, and just trying to fit in as well. And I'm really interested in your experience because you have lived in the North and in the South. And have you experienced any of these kind of uh, dynamics or conflicts between living in these two different areas? I remember when I moved to Bradford when I was 15, the biggest conflict I had uh, at the time was actually keeping a hold of my London accent. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> I, it sounds hilarious, but I remember trying to actually make a really concerted effort to sound like I was from London. And the funniest thing is, it was kind of inescapable as well. The first day of school, when I started, I had um, loads of people coming up to me saying, oh, you sound like you're from Harry Potter. And I was like, what? Harry Potter? Are you serious? I came from a state school in Fulham, girls' school, Fulham Cross Secondary School, where everyone used to say later. Uh, you know, we used to speak in like vernacular and stuff. It was full of working class girls. So Philip Correa, who plays Cassio, also spoke about the importance of accent and how he kind of changes it. So, Aina, so in your professional career as a journalist, have you ever had to kind of, you know, posh up your accent a bit for, for radio or for TV? 
I've definitely felt like at, at times that I I needed to speak a certain way to be to be taken seriously. I mean, the thing is, speaking the way that I do anyway, automatically people make assumptions about me and I have to kind of deconstruct those. I, at least sometimes I feel like I'm in the defense mode where I'm like, I have to deconstruct those. Um, because when people hear me and they don't see me, they're like, oh, okay, she must be middle class. And when I explain to them, well, actually, I'm from a single parent family, working class I also happen to be Pakistani as well. Then people are like, wow. And interestingly enough, this isn't just something, a response that I get from people who are from uh, white British backgrounds. Even my my own peers, my my own fellow British Pakistanis, you know, there are plenty of them that I met in school in Bradford. They also made the same assumptions about me. So teenage identity is so fragile anyway, but I just didn't want to change it. But then on the other hand... It was kind of like, oh my God, I don't belong. I don't belong here. I don't belong there. Yeah, it's really strange, yeah, it but it's certainly like you're did. a chameleon with, 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 your, with your accent. You're trying to kind of like adapt to certain situations. If you're with a peer group, maybe you'll kind of won't, you might have your radio voice on. For example, like my brother always makes fun of me because it's, oh, you sound really posh on, yeah. on the radio. But, but, you know, when I'm talking with my family or my friends, it, you know, it really goes out the window because I'm completely relaxed. I am who I am. You know, I think my accent has changed throughout my life, um, depending on the circumstances. But also, what does that mean when we might be compromising who we are to fit in? Like like Majid, Majid, he spoke about how he wanted to showcase his difference. He wanted to celebrate it. He didn't want to change in order to be uh, part of the mayor election. So are you also comfortable in showing that difference as well about yourself? Yes and no. I think I would be pretty naive to say that, oh, yeah, I am totally comfortable. I'm not. Sometimes it's kind of like you're streaking, you're stripping naked and bearing these uncomfortable parts of yourself because you know that, you know, in that particular space, you don't really belong there. For me also, as a Muslim woman, as a visibly Muslim woman, sometimes I go into spaces where I will wear a a turban instead of the more traditional style of hijab just to appear less Muslim. And, you know, I fully acknowledge that. I've done that because... I feel uncomfortable in those spaces, but I know that also people will react to me being there as well. And perhaps they'll see me as less threatening. Yeah. So often I've been thinking about wearing brighter colours instead of wearing black. I'm like, if I wear black, I'm going to just look oppressed or, you know, just fill in all those stereotypes that people always have about Muslim women. So often I've kind of chosen certain colours, certain styles to make myself more approachable, more appealing. And that's actually now fed into a lot of my my wardrobe. I used to wear black all the time and brown because I just didn't want to be seen. So I'm not just being this person who I I don't want to be seen. I'm being this person who's going to get that confidence, who wants to be approachable, who wants to create, build, uh, build bridges and just have conversations and, and create uh, relationships. And I think that that's also something that's actually um, evolved in my journey as a, as a British Muslim woman. I literally just dropped my, there we go, I just dropped my tea. I said British, but I, I say British to you. I've I probably been doing say British. it throughout the whole series, honestly. There's nothing wrong with it. Embrace the vernacular kind of you dropping know, of teas. It's once all good. I was actually on a a, co- a coach, uh, I think it was between here and Wales, and there was this older lady sitting next to me. And she saw me in my hijab and in my jeans and in my top. And she was like, oh, you have such good English. You know, how did you learn it? I said, well, I was born here. I was raised here. And she said, no, but but you have such good pronunciation. Have you taken elocution lessons? (laughs) I said, I am British. But it was just it wasn't getting through because what she saw wasn't complying with what she was hearing. When I was younger, for example, I remember seeing Moira Stewart and Trevor McDonald. And I thought, 
wow, this is amazing. These are people who who don't look like the, the norm, the white mainstream norm. And you felt like you could actually belong there. There is a place for you there. It's just that things need to change. And the only way that change can happen is when we actually put ourselves into those positions and create those opportunities and make the change. In every episode of this podcast, we're going to bring you a short reflection on the themes covered in every episode, each written by an important British Muslim voice. This week we hear from British Muslim playwright Rabia Hussain. On the morning of the Brexit referendum results, I found myself at the centre of a town that voted overwhelmingly to leave the EU. Walking amongst the majority white community, I couldn't help but feel what most people of colour still feel as a result of Brexit. You don't want me here, do you? This can be seen as a huge judgement on my part. After all, many claim they voted for Brexit for various reasons, not just immigration. And the media painted an effective picture of those who voted leave. They are the angry ones, the ignored ones the ones affected by immigration policy the most, so they feel the drain on resources much more personally. These are the marginalised white working classes who voted not just for Britain, but for themselves. But delve deeper into the voting patterns of this particular town, and you'll find successes for parties such as UKIP and BNP over the last decades. Coming across this narrative of taking our country back, my mind always drifts to the immigrant communities where I grew up, who came to the UK to fill the shortage of labour following the Second World War. I think back to the long days and weekends my dad and uncles worked in factories, the way my mum and aunties scrimped and saved to pay their mortgages, buy groceries and send their children to school. And I wonder, are they not working class too? Are they not as powerless as the white working classes? If both communities, the white working class and the ethnic minority working classes hold a similar disadvantage in terms of economic power, then why are we not asking who really holds the power in society? Where is the narrative that brings these groups together? Class is not just about wealth or privilege. When you other an entire community and control the discourse to pit them against each other, Instead of using class as a uniting factor, you divert attention away from the elite who control the resources of this country and, therefore, the power to keep themselves at the top. Iago's fight with Othello wasn't just about his own lower status. It was that a black man was of a higher rank than him, taking space that should be his as expressed through imperialism. But of course, the structures of power remain long after the downfall of both Othello and Iago. This is the lesson we can learn today. We cannot ignore race when we talk about class, and we must unite communities to recognise the real struggle is against elite power structures, not against each other. My thanks to the voices in this episode, to the Mayor of Sheffield, Majid Majid, to the pertinent reflection by playwright Rabia Hussain, and of course to our reporter, Aina J. Khan, Special thanks to the executive producer and creative advisor of the Othello Project, Abdurrahman Malik. I've been your host, Ramona Ali. Tune in next time to hear the final episode of this series, which unpacks our findings so far and looks ahead to Othello's next journey. 
As always, this and previous episodes of the Othello Project podcast, including our first series, is available at soundcloud.com forward slash English Touring Theatre and available on iTunes. This series is produced by Tom Glasser.